A powerful locomotive chugs along the tracks, steadily and consistently. The train's efficiency is driven by its ability to add cars strategically, extending its reach and impact. More cars in the end means more passengers or freight. Adding another locomotive empowers the entire system. However, this is a delicate process. If done right, it can make for an efficient machine. If executed poorly, it could lead to disastrous consequences. In the same vein, mergers and acquisitions demand meticulous planning, execution, and foresight to ensure success. In the world of B2B SaaS, the stakes are just as high. Companies must be able to grow, adapt, and evolve to maintain their competitive edge. Mergers and acquisitions provide the opportunity to expand a company's product offerings, increase market share, and optimize operations. When done correctly, these strategic moves can propel a business forward, just like adding cars to our metaphorical train. Enter Thomas Smale, founder and CEO of FE International, experts in navigating the complexities of mergers and acquisitions. With a wealth of experience under his belt, Thomas has orchestrated successful acquisitions for thousands of founders, owners, and acquirers. His keen understanding of the intricacies involved in M&A has made him a valuable advisor for businesses seeking growth and expansion. In today's episode, recorded at SaaS Talk 2022, we'll dive into Thomas's insights on the importance of strategic mergers and acquisitions, particularly in the B2B SaaS space. We'll explore the challenges and opportunities these transactions present and discover how Thomas and his team at FE International have helped businesses successfully integrate new cars onto their trains, solidifying their positions in the market. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from a true master in the world of mergers and acquisitions. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Thomas Smale speaks to Neil Desai about what blows M&A deals apart. They talk about how the SaaS landscape has changed the last decade, essential advice for founders looking for an exit, the impact of the economy on SaaS valuation, factors that make deals fall apart, and finding a process that aligns with value and vision. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a look into how to avoid tanking an M&A deal. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what resonated most about Thomas's advice. First, Thomas talks about how the SaaS landscape has changed the last decade. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thanks, Neil. I've heard that you've been to every single SaaS talk. Is that true? I've been to all of them, yeah. Where, uh, how does this one compare? The, I think this is the biggest one yet. Yeah. And like, probably the best one yet as well. Yeah. I've been coming to SaaS talk since it was a 20-person event in a very small room, and now it's 5,000. I feel like the energy has been meaningfully different post-COVID. People are just buzzing to get out and meet. Yeah, I feel like people from... want to get back to events, whether they're attending, sponsoring, yep. speaking, yep. versus... 2019 when the last event was I think people were kind of had been going to events all the time maybe a little bit tired yep everyone's re-energized we've got a lot to get into today I you're the guy for all things M&A and SaaS but before we dive into some specifics how'd you like why this well how'd you land here right like what's your background how'd you end up here and why is this interesting to you 12 years ago when I started the company SaaS didn't really exist it was software desktop software if you had a business and you wanted to sell it in the software space, there was no one that could help you. You could call a big investment bank like a Goldman Sachs. If you had a business worth less than a billion dollars, they wouldn't pick up the phone. 
And if you wanted to sell for the marketplace, I think back then your only option was eBay. And I think most people would know eBay is not a good place to sell a company and Goldman Sachs are not going to pick up the phone. We fit somewhere in the middle, which was we provide investment banking level services to businesses up to 100 million in valuation. So that's kind of how we fit in. 12 years ago, people would look at me like I was crazy because the market didn't really exist. It, we were very much first mover or very early mover. Today, it makes way more sense because you would meet many people in this room who've either worked with us or otherwise who've had a successful headset. So it makes a lot more sense now, but 12 years ago, no one was really thinking about it or doing it, but the opportunity was the market was clearly going to grow. I've been bullish on SaaS for 12 years, and obviously here we are today, biggest event they've ever had. It's looking good. What was that like back then? Because I feel like today, you're right, there's indie hackers and bootstrap founders and VC folks and everything in between, and there's many, a lot of services out there to help marketplaces actually to buy and sell SaaS. What was it like then? Like, what was it like starting it at the time? So firstly, bootstrapping also is not a term then. No one, no one would ever use that term. Every company was looking for funding or talking about getting funding. Self-funding a business was not common. I think even at the early days of SaaS stock, I don't think now they have a bootstrap stage. I don't think that existed when they first started. It wasn't, it was BC, how do you get funding? All the talks were, how do you raise money? How do you build a business with funding? All of those kind of things. So I guess we got laughed out of a lot of rooms early on, but what we found very early on, we did a lot of, similar to you guys, we did a lot of content marketing and you only need a very small base of people who recognize what you do and the value and they would come to you. When we started talking about what we were doing, a lot of people would say, oh, I didn't even realize this existed because it didn't exist. I guess it's kind of like writing content that no one is searching for, yeah. but you know those people are out there. Yeah. So that's really what we did early on. I guess it was content marketing, as you'd call it today. People came out and then the business is the same now, but it's all word of mouth from that. If you sell a business, as you guys know, you tell the whole world about it and you tell your peers, you tell your friends, if you've had an advisor in there, you're going to be like asking them how you did it, who you spoke to, things like that. I feel like you were early on the SaaS trend, but also on the content trend as well, right? Like today, everyone's in content, but back then you had to educate the industry, a lot of founders too, on what success means and how to think about this, the motions you go through to successfully sell your business, right? Yeah, there was literally nothing. So now we, like, we have a, one of the most popular pieces of content ever written about SaaS valuation, when we first wrote that piece of content, and we've updated it over the years, but I think six years ago, there were maybe five similar pieces of content. Now there's about a hundred articles, which will look surprisingly similar to ours on the same topic. And it was exactly the same back then. Back 12 years ago, you didn't really have social media. It was becoming a thing, but most people hung out on like forums, which don't really exist now, but kind of like Facebook groups. Um, so all of our content in the early days was there. And it was literally just talking about what we did. We started to get a little bit of traction. With a high-end service like ours, you don't need tens of thousands of customers to build a sustainable business. So yep. that's what we did. Next, Thomas talks about essential advice for founders looking for an exit. To shift gears a little bit, when we think about, and obviously at a place like SaaS Talk, there's a ton of founders here, a lot of bootstrap, VC-backed, everything in between. They tell you when you start a business to not think about the end, right? To not think about the exit, to not think about liquidity and all those things. But perhaps at some point in time that changes and you start thinking about what an M&A transaction could look like. What advice do you have for founders who are at that stage 
who are thinking of potentially getting there sooner, it's in the next couple of years or on the horizon. What are some of the things they should be thinking about or doing to maximize their chance of succeeding and maximizing their outcome in an M&A type transaction? Yeah, so I think, firstly, you're entirely right. You shouldn't think about it too early. The most important thing to do early in your business is build some traction, start making some money, make sure you have a viable business model. You shouldn't really be thinking about exit strategy on literal day one. It should be once you're profitable. When it then comes to thinking about an exit, the most important thing to do is establish what kind of exit you're trying to achieve. And then that really then determines the second part of your question, which is like, what kind of things could you be considering should you be thinking about? And we work with clients that have all sorts of different sizes of businesses. Some of them might say, okay, my target is $5 million. And other people might say, my target is 500 million. If you have a $500 million target, the things you need to do for the second part of your question are completely different from the person trying to get to 5 million. And there's not a, a right or wrong answer. There's no M&A firm or advisor that can tell you which number's correct. It is true that some businesses don't have the potential to get to 500 million valuation, but almost any business can get to 5 million. We've sold 1,200 businesses over the years, businesses we've sold worth seven or even eight figures you never would have heard of you would look at it it probably wouldn't even make sense to you because it's a very specific product for a very specific audience once you've established what you're trying to achieve you can then build specific goals and targets around that but they really depend on what you're trying to have as an outcome sounds like what you're saying is you need to be intentional about the outcome like or or the range of outcomes that you even want in the first place right i think yeah you shouldn't yeah. just do any random stuff to try you yeah. have an exit because it might be for example you're trying to build a $500 million business. As a leader or a CEO, you need to hire a C-level team of leaders to help you get there. If you're trying to build a $5 million business, the vast majority of companies we represent that sell for $5 million don't have a leadership team. They have a CEO, six contractors, and that's fine. But if you're just trying to build a $5 million business, I would not tell you to build a, a board or a sure. C-level. So it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. And then you can make intentional progress towards that. I feel like that ties in too nicely to like, you know, there's a lot of, uh, should we raise, should we not raise, should we stay bootstrapped, what's better VC or not VC? And it comes back to like, what are your actual goals, right? And what are, uh, how do you define success? Because I think in order to get to some of these outcomes, it's going to get, VC is just a tool to get there, right? Rather than like a culture or a philosophy, right? Yeah, exactly. There's, again, there's no right or wrong way to do it. In some businesses, it makes sense to raise capital. Some it doesn't. In the vast majority of cases, like either could be fine. Let's take, regardless of the, the, the size of the exit, are there things on a, whether it's auditing your books and other things that come to mind that are kind of consistent across all deals that founders must kind of keep in mind as they think about this? A hundred percent of deals, you have to have clean books and clean financials. That's unavoidable whether you're selling a business for $50,000 or $5 billion. You have to have that. So I'd say for any, and actually in this room today, there's tons of companies that help with that kind of thing, but having clean books, very important. It doesn't need to be complex financial controls. I would describe it as basic bookkeeping, but you may be surprised or maybe not surprised that a lot of businesses don't even do the basics. A lot don't even really do bookkeeping. The owner has no idea how much money they're making month to month. Most people know their revenue, but very few people know what their costs are, particularly in the smaller businesses. And again, this is where it really differs. If you have a $500 million company, you're going to have a CFO, you're going to have a finance team. Chances are your financials are in quite good order. The $5 million business, it's much more common that the numbers are kind of all over the place. All businesses have to have that. Other than that, I say there isn't really anything 
specific that every business has to have to be sellable sure. because it really depends where you're trying to achieve in terms of size. I guess the burden of quality is completely different in a 5 million acquisition to a sure. 50 or a 500. And now, Thomas talks about the impact of the economy on SaaS valuation. Obviously, the elephant in the room is, as we round out 2022 here, macroeconomic conditions, right? Especially in SaaS and growth companies has absolutely taken a hit in public markets. Funding has tightened up a lot, right? There's international conflict here and there. What is, let's unpack this a little bit. If you're a founder that has resourcing in a war chest, what do you recommend? How do they, how do you think about maximizing your opportunity as you, as we head into a very uncertain and delicate macro environment? Firstly, I'd say that the market for SaaS businesses below, let's say, 100 million in valuation has been relatively unaffected this year. We're going to be, so we haven't completed 2022 just yet, but we're going to be up year on year in terms of deal volume, total deal value. At least what we're seeing is good. Where it looks really bad is if you look at the public markets, valuations are in half larger deals as well, which tend to mirror the public markets anyway. The lower level that we operate in, so below that 100 million level on average, those deals have been less affected. They're still not at public market valuations anyway, which is what I see the industry opportunity to be, which is small private company multiples will continue to increase until we get to public multiples. The flip side of that is if you are a founder with a war chest, maybe you could change your immediate mindset to acquisitions. Growing through acquisitions is a valid way to grow your business. There are We're growing year on year. There are still lots of companies that are not, and there are still lots of opportunities out there. And I say founders are definitely more worried than they were 12 months ago and i'd say the sentiment in 12 months time from here is probably going to be even worse so i guess as much as i'd love to think we do we do not speak to every single founder sure. in the world of SaaS, so you can kind of take advantage of that lack of information the dollars your team adjusted to that are you saying under 100 million our thesis is the same valuations are more or less the same our team is business as usual or has your team shifted their strategy and diligence and their investment thesis very similar. We definitely put more emphasis on when we're looking at acquirers and whether or not we should be advising our clients to accept their offers, looking at how their funding is put together. So if they're a private equity firm and they've just raised equity and they have investor capital on hand, which is a lot of them, then that's fine. If they're relying on external debt, that's where we've really changed our mindset to. We pretty much would not advise any seller to accept that offer because I mean, in the US at least, Interests are rising. Most places in the world, interest rates are rising. Raising debt is significantly less certain than it was six to 12 months ago. So we haven't really changed a huge amount. I guess we've just got a little bit strict certain parts of the process. And I guess the burden of quality is a little bit higher than before. Because I'm talking about multiples haven't really decreased, but that's probably not the average across the board. That's just, we take on the best businesses that actively want to sell. There are still lots of businesses that are not doing well and could not be sold at all. As I have the rose-tinted glasses that I just see the best businesses. And we're, we're very fussy with what we take on. I also think if you look back in, in over the last couple of decades, some of the biggest outcomes have been during, right, recessionary times or times when the market has been down, when folks are a little bit more hesitant to make some of those big decisions. If you do have the capital and you can make those moves, it could be an opportune time to 
scoop up folks that are looking for a nice sweet landing spot if there's synergies in the product and the teams and everything like that yeah for sure and I, I think i was speaking to someone about this earlier but it also depends a lot on the sub industry you're in if you're in so recently we saw a business that was in the it was a platform in the real estate space and our advice to them was you absolutely need to sell now because real estate is going to fall off a cliff in the next 12 months and that was probably six months ago and that's definitely beginning to look like it was very true. Some businesses, like if I am Alex and I own Sastock, I'm probably very happy at the moment because events are back bigger and better than ever before. I don't think you'll find many people in this room who would bear against Sastock not being bigger next year. But I would definitely bear against the real estate SaaS business being smaller. So obviously we talk about, at least we use SaaS in quite a broad way. The reality is within SaaS, you have subsets of businesses which are going to do really well. Businesses are not going to do very well. And most businesses will be fine, like business as usual. Therein lies the potential opportunities. Buy businesses while they're down. There was a lot of activity during COVID. Buying businesses which were, that could maybe not operate during COVID. Founders got desperate. Yep. Couldn't wait until things reopened again. And wanted to sell. What's your take on if SaaS he heads towards more consolidation or not over the next, let's say, five years? Because I feel like these days, I, there are, it's infinitely easier to start and build a B2B SaaS tool. There's so many platform companies that make it easy to handle the infrastructure in the back end. As you guys think about the M&A scene, like, is there, do you, do you anticipate a higher consolidation of B2B SaaS? Like if I'm a new entrepreneur thinking of things to start right now, are you still bullish on B2B SaaS as a vertical or do you anticipate more consolidation in a few years? I'd say B2B SaaS is definitely not going anywhere. If we go back, so we go back to about, go back 12 years ago. And if we were all on stage, no one would ever ask me that question. People would talk about desktop software. They're like, oh, what do you think about desktop software? Uh, like, oh, there's this new thing called SaaS. Like, what do you think? Reality is if you look at any of the data, all large companies are moving away from on-premise. Everyone's moving towards cloud. SaaS is inevitably going to grow for the next 20 years, at least as large companies move away from on-premise. And a lot of these really big enterprises have not adopted SaaS yet. So there's still a huge amount of adoption to come. And anyone, any 22-year-old kid graduating college tomorrow starting a business is not, which is what you probably had to do 12 years ago. No one, you're not setting up a server at home you're signing up for a cloud product and you're just using B2B SaaS tools, that market is definitely not going anywhere. I think just culturally within the industry, even if you just walk around this room and you go speak to any of the, say, thousand founders in the room, almost everyone would view M&A either as an acquirer or as a seller as a valid option for their business. Ten years ago, no one was talking about it. So they wouldn't even, the question you're answering, people wouldn't even consider acquiring businesses. So I'm definitely bullish on SaaS and I'm definitely bullish on more companies viewing M&A as a strategic way to grow their business, whether it's um, buying like another SaaS business or whether it's bolting on something useful like a content or media arm. We sell a lot of businesses like that. We publish a magazine called SaaS Mag and the reason we do that is because we want to kind of own the audience as well as might be a different place in the funnel. We've seen that a lot in B2B too, right? HubSpot buying the hustle. We were just earlier we were talking with um, Mind the Product and Pendo. Pendo, yeah. Right? Over at Paddle and Profitwell. Content engine from, from Profitwell was something that and now we're, we're rolling up at the Paddle. I think using M&A as a way to grow, that's a very interesting way to think about it because it can be a growth lever if you get really good at right? The integration of the tech, the culture stuff, right? And the team stuff that could be, and, and historically it's been thought of largely as like largely old deal. We've lowered the barrier, right? And made it more accessible to mid and growth stage companies that previously maybe it was just the public companies that could grow through m and Yeah. But to your point, that is also the hard part. 
you're not going to see many. I do not think we get buyers that come to us all the time. If this is a hypothesis, they're like, I've raised $100 million. We're going to buy 20 companies and roll them all up. That sounds great in theory, but the reality is combining 20 companies is extremely difficult. So I think there'll be lots of businesses that will buy one business as an add-on, but will there be many companies that go out and buy 10 to add to their company? I think no. M&A is a strategy. Yes, but can it be your only strategy? I think in very limited cases, because as you guys were experiencing, it is difficult. You have different product, different culture, different tech, different leadership expectations, all sorts of challenges of combining. Combining two things is doable, but still challenging. Lots of acquisitions like that fail. Next, Thomas talks about factors that make deals fall apart. What's that stat? It's like 70% of M&A fails in the first 12 yards. Is that? I think at a corporate level, yeah. Is that legit? Like, is that, I, I read that all the time, but is that really true? That's, that's really bad. My interpretation of that statistic is it's always related to large public company M&A, where you hear the, like, the stories of bought a company, shut it down the next day. From what we see, that's not really the reality. Most people buying businesses, if they buy one or two, whether it's a small fund or whether it's an individual, they're generally putting significantly more time and effort into making that work. Um, particularly if it's all of their capital they've deployed under their fund, it's completely different from Apple buying a business for $10 million. They don't care if that's successful or, or, or not. I think that's where the that stat comes from. At least that's always been my interpretation. No, I mean, you've got the data on it, right? You've done a thousand plus deals or over the last decade. And so I've always been curious on like, where is that coming from? Because I think it gets, I mean, it gets a bad rep from that perspective. But to your point, it, it's, it probably skews towards larger corporate roll-ups and whatnot. I think a lot of it is just like media. I think they're the stories that people want to hear. You want to hear the good stories and the bad stories. So you hear about the billion dollar acquisitions and you hear about the companies that got shut down and everyone got fired. And when they make movies about M&A, it's about private equity firms who do exactly that. They buy a business. And the next day, everyone gets marched out and fired. And like, obviously that, that does happen, but at least in the world I live in and operate in, that's relatively uncommon. Most buyers want to keep the existing team. They want to keep them happy. They want to compensate them well. They want to combine the two entities efficiently. Does that mean sometimes there are roles that get let go or are not needed? Yes, but it's, it's more like some of the movies you see where everyone gets fired. Yeah, it doesn't really happen. Not in the tech space anyway. Sure. There's this, uh, I don't know if you've watched Succession at all, there, but there's that scene, right, where he, uh, where Kendall fires everyone from that a media company. Yeah, I think that's where people get it from. People look yeah. at that and they're like, oh, wow, these guys are scary. Everyone must do deals like that. In, in my experience, it's a little bit more boring than that. Most yeah. people want to keep the team, want to keep them happy, yeah. and will do what they can for that to... Especially in this environment, when hiring and recruiting is already insanely difficult, right? I think it's not a simple decision to just like cut costs like that. And also I think in like tech, people in this room, if you're an employee of a company, there's never been more employment options for you in history. If you're working in a, I think a lot of the bad stories about this happen in manufacturing companies in Ohio, where there's three factories yeah. that do what you do in a thousand mile radius, that's completely different. Yep. Like finding talent in that space is different. In the SaaS space, the reality is as much as like as CEO don't want to admit this, you can go wherever you want. Yeah. Pretty much. CEOs are definitely I know for me on my to do list for the last two years, retention and recruitment is always number one and two. Yep. And it's the same for I'm pretty sure any CEO you meet in the room, it's exactly the same. So I think 
people are becoming more conscious of that. You know, people are not throwaway resources. You know, that's just not the reality. As we round this out, the first is, I'm always curious, are there, I, in my head, I always picture these like M&A, due diligence, war rooms as intense and like sort of stressful environments. Are there common things that come up that blow deals apart that you've seen time and time again that founders can get ahead of in these situations? Yeah, so I guess our job is to remove all of the variables as much as we can that can kill deals. Deals that ha so deals that happen privately versus deals we represent are going to be different. Say deals we represent, the biggest variable for us and in any M&A transaction is the, the founder or the decision maker and quite honestly, the emotional side of it. Even though you're selling a business, you're still dealing with real people and real people, even really smart people, are unpredictable. You don't necessarily know how they're going to react. That's why a lot of people bring in M&A firms. There's a lot of value we bring to the table, but one part of it is objectivity. You can say whatever you want to me and I can assure you you will not offend me and I will not be emotionally offended as part, particularly in any sort of transaction. Our job is to be, uh, I guess, like transactional. And sometimes you might even describe us as cold because we're very direct, not emotional about things. As deals, I'd say, get bigger. Often you, you have like accountants dealing with accountants. They're generally not going to argue. Where it gets contentious is usually lawyers and attorneys. So we spend a lot of our time I wouldn't say like herding cats, but trying to figure out how to get attorneys to play ball. Because attorneys tend to have egos and they tend to want to add their spin on a deal. They want to like retrade points that have already been agreed. So attorneys are the biggest variable. Accountants are usually fine. They're generally not going to argue with each other. The founders are a, are a big variable, but that's if someone has been self-conscious enough to realize they need an M&A firm like us or whoever else it might be, then they're probably also self-aware enough to remove the emotional side as part of that negotiation. Yep. But, and then in private deals, there's an unlimited number of things that blows deals up that we would mitigate throughout our process. And now Thomas talks about finding a process that aligns with value and vision. Thomas, what are you most excited about as you think about the next year? Both, we could be personally, professionally. The time has never been better to build and grow with SaaS companies. What are you excited about? So selfishly, not selfishly, industry-wise, I think it's going to continue to grow. Very bullish just on the industry as a whole. I don't think that's going anywhere. I think selfishly, talent and retention has been very difficult for the last couple of years. I think with more and more companies making layoffs, I think relatively small companies like us are going to have the opportunity to hire talent that was previously not available or not accessible and i think lots of companies in this room that might have about 150 people in total now there are lots of companies in this room in that kind of 100 to 500 range that maybe could not previously have afforded c-level talent at much larger companies which i think is going to be good for the industry because you're going to get that more experienced talent coming into the space it will help kind of solidify the industry so that's what i'm excited about and I, again like 12 years ago if i was on stage trying to a C-level executive at, say, Apple to come work for us, there would be zero possibility yeah. they would even consider it. But now we're in a world where senior people at large companies love the idea of this world in this room. Yep. And that just wasn't a cultural normality years ago. Any final words of wisdom or advice to founders that are thinking of selling your business or involved in some M&A over the next 12 months as, as you think about maximize their outcome? Number one is just ignore what you read in the, the press. If you have a business below $100 million valuation, which is almost everyone in this room, the market is, is fine for the vast majority of businesses. If you are thinking about selling, you should explore lots of options, but speak to different M&A firms, 
speak to different potential acquirers and get a range of options because I'd be biased and say we're the best in the world at what we do, which I objectively believe to be or subjectively believe to be true. But we have a very specific process. A lot of people won't like that and they want to run things their own way. You need to pick a process and a company that aligns with your own vision, your own values. Thomas, if people want to learn more about you guys or find you, where where can they find you? Where can they go to learn more? Sure. So you can go to the feinternational.com website. We have, similar to you guys, tons of content, written content, downloadable content, white papers, um, lots of podcasts we've been interviewed on. So you can go there. Social media, you can find us. Shout out to Thomas for being on the show. Now you know what to avoid when going to your M&A deal. Today, we talked about how the SaaS landscape has changed the last decade, essential advice for founders looking for an exit, the impact of the economy on SaaS valuation, factors that make deals fall apart, and finding a process that aligns with value and vision. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson Thomas taught you from today's episode. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.